Hi everyone and welcome to the second part of our look back at 1986 um, in celebration of our 150th episode which was last week and my dutiful co-host's birthday. Uh, Hi Ed, how are you doing? Hi, I'm still good. (laughs) Still 30? Still 30 for another 51 weeks. Yeah, yeah. uh, I was about to say it doesn't get any older but it actually does. (laughs) <laughs> um, so yeah, we decided we'd talk about two of the the kind of the biggest films of of nineteen eighty six, and kind of weirdly they turn out to be but two of the best films of that year as well. Uh, they are Top Gun and Aliens. One is a film that is kind of unusual that's never been sequelized, um, and the other is a film which is often regarded as one of the best sequels of all time. That's a strange coincidence, isn't it? Yeah, and they're also interesting in that they both have the clear dna of what blockbuster cinema would become and in both good and bad ways but they also when you watch them now when you compare them to blockbusters that came after that clearly owe something to them even if in the most general terms they feel very atypical top gun in particular doesn't feel to me like what i think of at what i have come to expect from a blockbuster hmm it's weird, isn't it, that like it was the kind of the very definition of high concept, uh, in in the sense that Tom Cruise is a fighter pilot. There you go, that's your concept there. That's the entire film. It, it, we think of it as, as blockbuster. We think of blockbusters very kind of masculine, uh, very kind of testosterone driven. And in both cases, Top Gun and Aliens, you've got Top Gun is a film I almost now think of as a chick flick, mm-hmm. and Aliens is a film which is kind of full of machismo at the start and then is, you know, fronted by, a, a, you know, a strong, powerful female lead. And, you know, no one was complaining about it back then. Yeah, and and the thing, I think it was interesting because I rewatched Top Gun today and this is the first time that I've watched the film since probably about 2001 or 2002 when I first watched it on VHS, VHS and I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. when I watched it then and I didn't like it for a number of reasons one of which was that I thought it was kind of formless and it didn't really have much of a story I thought that there wasn't enough action and I thought that there was a lot of it that would just felt like style over substance and now watching it you know having just turned 30 uh, that's all the stuff I like about it (laughs) (laughs) and it's very weird to me that that's that's how it's turned out but I think I've become so used to blockbusters being really indifferently shot to have to spend no time kind of just establishing what the characters are like in their downtime they're so driven by the plot and they don't even do the plot well that to see a film like this which looks like gorgeous it's one of the best looking films of the 80s i think certainly of the of the the, of kind of mainstream cinema you can see why tony scott redefined how mainstream american cinema looked for the better part of a decade because it does look great, all the magic hour shooting, all the slow motion and kind of smoke going, it just looks amazing. But also, you know, it's it's really weird to watch a film that was a huge success, like, you know, made Tom Cruise the biggest star in the world, made all of this money, which also at various points just has the characters hanging out, talking about Otis Redding or singing songs at a piano. 
Um, mm. Stuff that has nothing to do with flying planes and taking on MiGs. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It seems like whenever I think of Top Gun, I very rarely think of Tom Cruise in a plane. Mm. I think of like James Tolkien kind of like bawling him out for, you know, being too too much of a maverick, if you will. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's his character name. And yet everyone's really surprised when he does things they don't like. (laughs) Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Like, the guy who dies is called Goose, obviously. There's, like, a black pilot called Sundown. Yeah, I saw that in the credits. It's, it's, that's a weird choice. Really bad. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the, the the kind of offensive names they used to pick in Gladiators. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, It's terrible. But, yeah, I I kind of never really think about the, the kind of, like, the, the dogfighting elements, even though those bits are in there are you know kind of like really well done and really well executed they're really vague like i don't really understand who they're fighting in that film is it kind of the russians i mean it is because they're kind of migs that they're shooting down but like what conflict is this part of it's kind of weird i don't really understand so yeah that's kind of happening but if i think of top gun i think of berlin and take my breath away i think of tom cruise in a in a you know like a flight jacket riding a motorbike at sundown um for no reason and i think of uh, you lost that loving feeling uh, which is is weird because that's you know a very small part of the film. Yeah, or I th- when I think about it, I think of just weird like little character moments. Like watching it today, I'd forgotten how much I enjoy Anthony Edwards' fake laugh when uh, when Val Kilmer kind of makes a joke about them, and he he does this huge laugh where he's just like <laughs> and like <laughs> leans on Tom Cruise's back, and it's so funny to me how big he goes. But it's it's a really wonderful character choice. Plaque for the alternates is down in the ladies' room. Oh, Jesus. Oh, you kill me. You really do. And, like, when you compare it to something like, I don't know, Jurassic World or something, where no one is making any choices whatsoever and it's all very flat and uh, uh, prosaic, Mm. to see a film where every actor, even if they're in small parts like Meg Ryan, who shows up as, as Goose's wife, you know, they just come in and they make the most of it and they try and imbue their 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 little role with just a sense of fun and, and a genuine sense of, of character and that these character these people are lived in, even if they are saying like stuff that is, is beyond cliche, like your ego's uh writing checks that your ca- your body can't cash and stuff like that, which is so ludicrously hard boiled that it's it's easy to see why it goes into the realm of parody or Val Kilmer's whole performance is just so kind of big and, uh, you know, a little chilly, I'll say. Mm, you know, yeah. Hey, they, he, he was a bit kind of, uh, he should have had a Broadway play spun off about him. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, his flat top in, in that film is quite something to behold. Mm. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of like a, an art like work of, of kind of a pure geometry. It's kind of absurd. Um, but oh yeah, also the greatest beach volleyball scene of all time. Yeah, um, in fact, the only one I can think of. But yeah, it's just kind of weird that that is just shoehorned uh, right into the middle of the film. And I, I, a little story about Top Gun. I may have told this story before. I apologise if you heard it. Um, but they used to do the Desert Island Cinema at the showroom in Sheffield, where you know you, you pay a bit of money, you can show whatever you film you, uh, you want, provided they can get hold of it. Um, you get a load of tickets for your mates to come along, and the rest of the the seats go on sale to the general public. So you used to be able to get kind of like really weird films that would just be playing randomly on a Saturday afternoon. And one day I was in town, Top Gun was on. So I thought, fuck it, I've never seen Top Gun on the big screen. I'll go and see it. Went to see it. I had a blast. 
got to the bit in the middle with the volleyball scene and everyone is having a great time. There's obviously a huge group of people at the front. They're obviously all together. It's someone in there. It's their birthday. They are howling through what is, you know, an absurd montage uh, of like homoerotic um, uh, kind of volleyball playing. And everyone's laughing. Everyone's having a good time. Apart from this one dude who is sat behind me going, oh, Jesus Christ, this is serious. Why are they laughing? <laughs> I'm just like, mm, I don't really know like on like what planet that film is serious in any way, even though it deals with, you know, military conflict and people dying and stuff and, you know, failing to live up to your, you know, your father's expectations and all that caper. The volleyball scene is levity all the way. Yeah, it is. It is ludicrous and and delightfully so. Although this time through, I did feel sorry for Anthony Edwards as the one guy who clearly wasn't cut enough to go shirtless for it. He's the yeah. guy. He's wearing a very loose fitting t shirt, and everyone else is just in ridiculously good shape. Mm. And Rick, Rick Rossovich was like an actor from that period where you just don't. I mean, he's not dead, is he? I don't believe so. No, I mean he's in like uh, Roxanne. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the kind of the dunce in that he's you know in a few other films from the 80s but like he just kind of disappeared yeah it's very weird hmm. maybe the role's dried up for being kind of like uh, you know slightly jockish idiot um, you know kind of those, those roles are kind of taken up elsewhere. I wonder what he's doing now. he's probably like working for the UN or something <laughs> but, yeah, probably not but yeah it's uh, weird that like Tom Skerritt is in, in both in Top Gun and he's in the Alien franchise uh, in he's in the first Alien film, looking like the fifth member of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, <laughs> and in Top Gun, looking like a ball bag with eyes. Yeah, he's he's got the range. He yeah, really he's grizzled. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's kind of in contrast to Top Gun. Aliens uh, has very few moments of levity. I think there's a bit where uh, Vasquez kind of burns Hudson a few times, and there's some uh, kind of banter between the the kind of. The, the grunts as it were but it's quite a joyless affair isn't it, aliens yeah i mean like like you say during that first hour before the first alien attack there is a lot of kind of bonhomie i guess between all of the esprit de corps if you were as as the french say between mm. all of the space marines who are making fun of each other and just generally kind of being dicks to the extent that some of them you don't care if they die but and you know yeah. they will but but there is a there is a sense of dread over the whole film because you've seen Alien, you know what these things can do, you know that this film's called Aliens. So you think, okay, one of those things murdered, brutally killed everyone on board the Nostromo. If there's more than one of them, it's probably not going to go well for these guys who are blundering into a situation in which they are, for which they are not particularly prepared, much like the Americans did in Vietnam, which is kind of the metaphor coursing underneath the... Uh, well-oiled muscles of the movie but Mm. but that is uh you know it's 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 a film that has a sense of fun but it is counterpointed against the fact that you know at a certain point everyone on screen is going to be menaced by these terrifying nightmares that have emerged from the subconscious of hr giga it's i think the thing that always strikes me about aliens a film i have seen dozens of times is you kind of alluded to it there, the structure and the pacing of the film. Mm. The build-up is incredibly measured. You don't see anything. I think it's a, it's it's. I think it's an hour in the extended director's cut. You know, with all the extra bits in, you don't need. Um, and it's about forty-five, fifty minutes in the theatrical version until you see an alien, and that is kind of unheard of in today's kind of modern blockbuster 
you know people are going to get bored if there's not some kind of like big opening scene or a set piece somewhere in there there's just nothing like that it's just all character moments and tension it just builds up and builds up and builds up and like you say you know that these guys are you know are going to get fucked up even though they they're kind of armed to the tits um it's not until they kind of descend into that nest that it all starts to go uh go a bit wrong but then by counterpoint the last half an hour of the film especially when uh, Ripley realises that she has to go back for Newt, is some of the most kind of breathtakingly paced action cinema I have ever seen. And what kind of surprises me about this is if you kind of watch Aliens and you you kind of take absolutely everything into account and then watch Avatar, (laughs) the, the differences are so stark, made by the same person with, you know, the same freedoms you know, the same talent, essentially. And one is, you know, incredibly human. You connect to it and it is truly exhilarating as a thrill ride and a piece of, like I say, action cinema. And the other just rings just so totally hollow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the big difference is that one of them is anchored by Sigourney Weaver, who is a great actress. I think she really heightens the genre fare by bringing a sense of humanity to it and she obviously brings the weight of being in the previous film and being a survivor of this terrible thing that had happened so there is genuine weight to her performance and the other one is led by some sort of mannequin with a face drawn on it you know (laughs) sam worthington not uh is is not as charismatic as uh his fellow australian chris hemsworth you know he is very much the he's kind of like the nega hemsworth i think Mm. that's how he's best viewed someone who has the body but none of the charisma and i think that's a big part of it but also i feel like at that he was still at a very early stage of his career we talked about in the previous episode how this was his third movie so and and he was being given kind of the keys to a franchise that no one had done much with for seven years so there was expectation but there wasn't it wasn't the sense that like now when someone takes on a franchise pick where you get the sense that the suits are all really there he was pretty much allowed to do what he wanted but also he's being uh mediated by walter hill who was still hugely involved with the series at that point uh and who i always felt you can see his hand in this in that the film is very similar to southern comfort his mm-hmm. uh, film which was also a metaphor for vietnam but that was set in the american south um so I feel like there are a lot of factors holding him back. And, and this is, you know, to use an analogy to another filmmaker who made some really good early movies and then got a lot of money and freedom. It's kind of a George Lucas thing where if you have huge success and no constraints, then you can play to your worst habits. And that is something I think you see in Avatar because Aliens does have some of the same problems that avatar has in that the dialogue is sometimes a little cliched it has a bit of a t- he's he has a bit of a tin ear for dialogue but because you're still working with physical sets you're still working primarily with actors the effects are state-of-the-art for the time but still fairly limited in what you can do with them they don't overwhelm everything so it still relies on you know people like bill Paxton and Jeanette Goldstein and all of these actors coming in and doing you're doing the you know the best they can to make these lines work and to make these characters feel real and in Avatar there isn't really any of that uh, mm. and, and also uh, going back to the extended cut you do actually see aliens very early on in the extended cut because they show Newt's family being killed 
but it's very very brief so um well you see um newt's mum with a face a dad with a face hugger right on. you don't yeah. actually see any of the xenomorphs ah fair enough but, um, but, but you, yeah, go on. But there is, you're right that it's a very, very long time after that. But I always feel like that, even that brief glimpse does puncture the tension to an extent that I've never found myself able to warm to the extended cut, even though it does have those cool remote turrets. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. The extended cut has, um, the, the start of the film, you kind of see the, the captain of the colony. Mm. Um, and it's the same American actor who is the captain of Red Dwarf, um, <laughs> who in, for those of you who remember the very first, the very beginning of Red Dwarf, uh, the kind of, he, he's obviously, cause both things were shot in, in, in the UK. So he's obviously an American actor who lives in the, in the UK and, uh, he plays exactly the same character pretty much. Uh, he's only in like the first like, few episodes of Red Dwarf, um, uh, always really distracted me and jarred me out of it. And yeah, you don't need to see the the colonists or anything for that to work. But the, like I say, those automated machine gun turrets are pretty cool. It it kind of showing them does, uh, in a sense, take away a lot of the tension because one of the things, one of the things that I really like about aliens in the original version is that when they arrive in the colony, there is kind of like a, a Roanoke feel of it you know the the abandoned colony where no one really knows what happened to the people who live there the the sense that there is this place people used to live here now they don't and people have to try and figure out what it is and when you and obviously we know what happened but the characters in the film don't and and if you were coming to aliens fresh which i imagine a lot of people were in 1986 um you can't guarantee that everyone who saw it had seen alien mm. it's it's much more impactful when you don't see everything because there is that mystery element and and that is something that i feel that cameron really takes his time with and does a good job with you know it it, not only does he take his time building the tension but he does genuinely create a sense of mystery and unease and a question of what happened to these people and for people who aren't familiar with the previous film there is a genuine sense of suspense and suspense and mystery to it Mm, mm. Um, i always forget that paul rises in the film and but he plays one of cinemas, oh, well, kind of definitely one of modern cinemas' greatest shitheads. Mm. Um, yeah. a, a kind of like a kind of a, a corporate suit who uh, appears to be goading Ripley into taking this job on for reasons uh, unknown. And oh yes, they all turn out to be very nefarious, like de- like deeply nefarious. Yeah, and, and kind of creating a type because I mean I think the idea of an unscrupulous. Company man is not a new type of cinema, but the idea of having one in a sci-fi film and someone who it has a certain degree of charisma, even if they are ultimately turned out to be absolute shits and they get what's coming to them, that feels like something that was quite new in that context. And he embodies it so much that whenever I watch like a sci-fi film or a horror film where there's a character like that in, that's that's who you compare it to because he is mm. the person who if it didn't originate that idea, he certainly perfected it. Mm. Do you think that, that his character and the view of like, kind of like corporations is directly a result of being made during kind of Reagan era? Yeah. And I think it also comes from the fact that James Cameron, even though he had worked in America for a long time is Canadian. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like his films do have a certain skepticism of that kind of, 
unfettered capitalistic corporatism and that is something that comes through there that you can kind of see i guess you can see in in the terminator films in the the world is ended by a corporation who probably needed some government oversight into that ai they were working on <laughs> you know his skepticism about technology but also his skepticism about the way in which faceless corporations will misuse that technology which you also see in avatar although it it's not as effective because Giovanna Ravisi, as good an actor as he is, isn't particularly compelling at selling that idea. Uh, that's that's something that you can kind of see coursing throughout a lot of his work. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, and it's ironic as well that like by the time he got around to making Avatar, uh, he was the corporation. Mm-hmm. We talked about them both these films uh, being now part in, in kind of part of the DNA of modern blockbusters, and like they're kind of imbued. Uh, in in the kind of films we see now, but yet we both we've said how both films are quite different to modern blockbusters. Um, what is what's the imprint that these films left on on the films today? In the case of Top Gun, I think it's very much in its visual style. In that Tony Scott was the first person to really popularize what has has often been described as chaos cinema which is where you don't really pay a huge amount of attention to things like geometry or establishing the space it's more about creating a visceral sense of what is happening and kind of keying into the emotion of a scene i think you can really see that in all of the dogfights in top gun which are kind of confusing in that you're often just seeing planes fly briefly across the screen in like every two or three seconds uh but you still you have a sense of what is going on because you're you're keying in on what the characters are going through and there's just a sense of motion and a sense of chaos going on and and you feel the tension of the scene in the case of aliens i think you do get it's more from the point of view of advancing what you can do in terms of special effects cinema and of the spectacle of watching people fight kind of faceless hordes, which is basically what most blockbusters are at this point, Uh, even though it handles the human side of things better than a lot of modern blockbusters do. uh, The technological side of it is something that has come to dominate a lot of blockbuster filmmaking. Mm. It's interesting that you should say kind of faceless hordes, because uh, I think I might be wrong slightly, but... uh... It'll be overall correct, this fact. <laughs> they only made like six suits, six alien suits for that film. That sounds right. Um, and it's that's the the way they manipulate that and use that and, and, and the way that they, they kind of get around that is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, because I think the most you ever see in one place is like three of them. Mm. Like you see three in the vents when they realize that they're trying to go over their heads. Yeah, the rest. Yeah. Of the, the film time. really should be called "Technically Aliens," <laughs> barely aliens. <laughs> yeah, um, um, but but even then, they do have a personality, in that the alien queen feels like a distinct character from her her offspring, mm. uh, and has slightly more motivation than most villains in blockbusters do today. Even though she can't speak, and the most that she does is kind of detach an egg sac and then hang on to a ship. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Even though the film is amazing and the end is like kind of incredible, um, I never really bought the the alien queen stowing away on the ship. Yeah, it, um, there's in terms of uh, modern blockbuster filmmaking, kind of cutting corners is something that you see a lot in in terms of the plot. 
yeah and that um, doesn't make a huge amount of sense yeah but i mean it's all in service of having a, a kind of like a sweet fight between alien queen and uh ripley in a power loader yeah and, and it also feels kind of in keeping with alien the end of alien where it's not entirely clear how the alien gets in the escape pod it's mm. just there and it's just there for kind of gratuitous shots of sigourney weaver in her underwear in her tiny space pants. Yeah, so it's it, it kind of is in keeping, but it's also really yeah, you're right. It, it does feel weirdly out of place, and and like mm. they reached a point where like there's no real good explanation for why she's going to be on the ship. We'll just show her get hit by this strut of this plane, and then she's there. Mm. Why do you think that uh, Top Gun has never been sequelized? Uh, I think that it's one of those ones that's been bubbling under. I think a few years ago they came close to doing it, but then Tony Scott sadly passed away. Uh, but I think it's just that it's, it's one of those things where it's such a unique combination of actors and filmmakers working together in, in kind of perfect harmony, but also culturally, culturally the mid eighties was the height of American militarism in a sense, mm. the fetishization of the American military, which wouldn't really come again until the early 2000s, post 9-11. But then it, it was in a different way because people didn't really want to make movies about the army because no one wanted to see movies about the Iraq war or the uh, war in Afghanistan. So I think that it just didn't make sense to make it in the 90s when there weren't a huge amount of heroic conflicts going on or there weren't uh kind of low stakes conflicts like the one that takes place in in top gun so maybe there was just no good cultural moment for it to be made no kind of good reason to and that's never stopped hollywood before but i guess if you are trying to make a sequel to one of the most successful films of all time you probably want to try and maximize your profit Mm. And and it really was kind of impactful in a nationalistic sense because um, didn't it see like a, a huge rise in applications to be part of the the kind of fighter pilot program and in sales of aviator shades? Yes, which is also very important. But like, if you think about the fact that it wasn't sequelized, um, it's no surprise to see later on in 1986 the film Iron Eagle released, mm. uh, and that was sequelized. That is um, the very definition of a knockoff, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and that was you know kind of a, a cheap. I think it's Lou Gossett Jr. and someone else. I bring this up, this is an aside, but um, one year when I was maybe about 12 years old, Ed, I got a Christmas present from like an auntie or something, and it was Iron Eagle 3, Mm -hmm. like just in like an ex-rental video case. And I was like, well, I didn't like, I mean, thanks, right? (laughs) But why? Like, I mean, you're assuming I've seen Iron Eagle 1 and 2, um, which I mean, I hadn't at that point. Um, why give me Iron Eagle 3? Did you just find that in your house and go, what a really weird present to give someone? <laughs> you know what I mean? Even if you thought, well, he likes films, I give him Iron Eagle 3. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's odd by it's anyone's standards. It's technically a film. It is technically a film. Uh, and we've been over this before that, like, you know, my grandma did buy me Robocop when I was 10 uh, on video. So, you know, Swings and roundabouts, I guess. But yeah, yeah, Aliens. So if Top Gun hasn't been sequelized, Aliens has. And, you know, we're up to film four, five, six, six, if you count the Aliens versus Predator movies. Yeah, uh, yeah, they had the four in the original quadrilogy. 
to use mm. a term that thankfully didn't really catch on outside of that box set they released. Um, yeah. Then you have the two a- AVP films, and then of course Prometheus, a film. Oh, Jesus Christ, I forgot about that. Yeah, a film that has made such a lasting cultural impact <laughs> that you bring it up four years later, and it's hard to believe that it even happened. Yeah, but they're sequelizing that. Um, That's true. Which is, and they've decided to go back to the word alien in the title, which would be uh, probably a wise move. You don't want people to be kind of generally baffled by a film called Prometheus, which is purports not to be a sequel to Aliens, but then kind of is a prequel to Aliens, but then is also just a weird mess. But yeah, okay, like Aliens, obviously it's had a lot of life, this this uh, this franchise, but it's never really got anywhere past the quality of Alien and Aliens. No, it's very front-loaded, that. That, uh, mm. that series. Although it's interesting in that it's one of the rare, for a while at least, it was one of the rare franchises where you could really see the stamp of each individual director. Even yeah. if those results weren't necessarily good, like, you know, Alien 3 is a film that is very interesting, but, you know, deeply flawed and doesn't entirely work, regardless of what cut you watch of it. It's not a great movie but it's an interesting movie in terms of you know obviously it was david finch's first film and seeing it judged against things like seven and the game and fight club it's interesting to see how his style evolved and alien resurrection is a goddamn mess but it's interesting to see like jean-pierre Jeunet's crazy aesthetic being applied to a mainstream hollywood movie and it's also interesting seeing joss whedon write it and being able to kind of fairly easily map some of the characters onto his work on Firefly a few years later. So Mm. at least they were interesting failures, even if they were, for the most part, terrible failures. Mm. They've both got like super weird moments in them. And for anyone who kind of hasn't read about the the production history of Alien 3, I'd really definitely recommend uh, doing so. It's it's kind of a fascinating story. At at one point, uh, the kind of Kiwi filmmaker Vincent Ward was going to make a film in which the alien had kind of uh, Ripley's spaceship lands on uh, like a wooden planet entirely populated by monks who worship the alien when it's kind of it hatches and like it's just kind of two like, absolutely crackers idea to to kind of work and uh, yeah unsurprisingly it got kind of chopped for something a bit more formulaic but still has the the kind of like say interesting kind of stylistic stamp of David Fincher. Neil Blomkamp was talking about doing a, a fifth entry to the the normal Alien uh, franchise. We mentioned it before. Uh, you and I aren't particularly enamoured by Mr. Blomkamp's work uh, beyond District Nine, which even though I'm not that sold on, what's the status of that? Have we heard any more about that since? He certainly seems to be acting as if it's going to happen. He's definitely talked it up, and and there was interviews recently in which he said that he was just going to act as if um, Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection didn't happen. Which is understandable, I guess, in that they're the films that people don't really like, but it's not something that has a great track record. I think Mm -hmm. the only other time anyone's done that was Superman Returns, which wasn't exactly beloved by anyone except me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But that that was another case where they imagined that two films didn't happen, but people didn't really care. So it seems weird to to take that tack with it. But it's he seems to be thinking that it is happening, but at the same time, if you've got Alien Covenant happening, and if Fox, who I believe are behind it all, aren't, don't seem that interested in doing an Alien Expanded Universe, it, it seems like if Alien Covenant is happening, then Alien 5 slash 3 probably isn't going to happen at this point. 
which I think is probably a mixed blessing because I don't want to I don't want a sequel to Prometheus, but I also don't want to see another Neil Blomkamp film. <laughs> so anything that prevents him making movies is fine with me. Mm, we're caught between two particularly unpleasant stalls there. Um, yeah, not really uh, something you want to want to have. It's almost as if whoever wins, we lose. Hey, that would make a fucking great tagline to a terrible movie. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That's kind of like the, the end of our second part of uh, our 1986 uh, episodes. That was fun to talk about, wasn't it, Ed? Nice to uh, look at an individual year. Yeah, and, and I also greatly enjoyed revisiting Top Gun and realising that my opinion at the age of 14 wasn't entirely correct on whether or not it was a good film. So if anyone out there thinks that what you thought at 14 still holds true, it probably doesn't. You should probably mm. reject that at this point. Yeah, you're going to have to watch every single film that you rejected at age 14 again now. Oh, man. I'm going to have to rewatch uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. No, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Which, is, that the, is that the one that was directed by Rennie Harlan? I think the second one was Rennie Harlan. That's the uh, one with the weird gay under un, undercurrent, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And then there's one where, yeah, the, the the one I think of is when he's like, he's a puppet master, but he's using someone's veins as that's, the string. That's the third one. That's Dream Warriors, which is actually really cool. Oh, yeah. yeah Co-written yeah. If, by Frank Darabont. Fucking hell, man. Yeah, these people. These people do lots of weird stuff. Um, but anyway, yeah, cool. That's our uh, our look back at 1986. Um, uh, we won't be back next week because I'm on holiday. Um, so uh, we will have someone else sitting in my chair. Um, and I hope they keep it nice and warm for me. Uh, I don't want to come back to a kind of Goldilocks type scenario. <laughs> um, but yeah, until then, everybody, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>